called Glory of the Logos in the Flesh, St. John Paul's Theology of the Body. If you count the number of words in the title, it turns out to be seven, I think. And the subtitle, seven. Lucky roll. Lucky roll. Um, on the cover, there's a painting by Titian of Bacchus and Ariadne. Only half of it, the, the left half, because the whole format wouldn't fit. With a reason. The Renaissance was a period where the, the great images of Greek art came into Europe, just as in the Middle Ages, the great philosophers of Greece entered Europe. It's an image of the love of a god, Bacchus, the god of wine. You can see the wine red cloak and Ariadne. It's part of the founding myth of Athens. The Athenians lost a battle against Crete and King Minos of Crete demanded in regular intervals, I think every two or three years, seven young men and seven young women to be sent from Athens to Crete to be devoured by the Minotaur. A monster with the head of a bull and the body of a, of a man. Theseus, who was the son of the king of Athens, volunteered to go along and fell in love with Ariadne, the daughter of the king. She helped him to overcome the Minotaur, she gave him a sword and also a thread, the famous thread of Ariadne, to find his way back out of the maze. So they fled together to the island of Naxos, but in the meantime, the god Dionysos, Bacchus, claimed her for himself to make her a goddess, so Theseus had to leave. You can see his ship to the left of Ariadne's shoulder there, there'll be close-ups. And his engagement present was a ring that you can't order from Amazon. It's uh, one of the constellations in the, in the sky, the, the northern crown with eight stars. The whole scene is set in an incredibly spacious realm of sea and sky the goddess jumping down from his, from the chariot. Now look right below the god's head in the landscape. There's a building there that's quite un-Greek. What, what does it look to you like? It's a, it's a church steeple. It's part of the details of Titian's adaptation of the myth, or setting it into a Christian setting. Titian was the favorite painter of Saint Pope Paul VI. The whole theology of the body is on um, the encyclical Humanae Vitae in one way or another, so that seemed appropriate to choose. The title of the book, Glory of the Logos in the Flesh, is taken from a passage in the Theology of the Body that I want to read to you. To me, it seems that passage is in some way the spiritual heart of the whole Theology of the Body. Although keeping one's own body with holiness and reverence is formed by abstaining from lustful passion, and this way is indispensable. Nevertheless, it always bears fruit in the deeper experience of the love that has from the beginning been inscribed in the whole essence of man, and thus also in his body according to the image and likeness of God himself. For this reason, Paul ends his argument in 1 Corinthians with a significant exhortation. Therefore, glorify God in your body.
purity as a virtue or ability of keeping one's own body with holiness and reverence, allied with the gift of piety. It's one of the main theses of the theology of the body, that the virtue of purity and the virtues acquired by acting well, a gift of the Holy Spirit comes freely as a gift, but that there's a particular relation between the virtue of purity and the gift of piety. The gift of piety understood as a particular sensibility for what's sacred, a God-given sensibility for what's sacred. So allied with the gift of piety as a fruit of the Holy Spirit's dwelling in the temple of the body, causes in the body such a fullness of dignity in interpersonal relations that God himself is thereby glorified. Purity is the glory of the human body before God. It's the glory of God in the human body through which masculinity and femininity are shown. And then a sentence that's, that's one of my very favorites in the, whole, in the whole book, amazing sentence. From purity springs that singular beauty that permeates every sphere of reciprocal common life between people and allows them to express in it the simplicity and depth, the cordiality and unrepeatable authenticity of personal trust. A man and a woman entrust themselves to each other, even though we are sinners. So it's, it's a risk, it's a great risk. Authenticity of personal trust, it's, it's the real thing. Cordiality comes from the heart. It's something extremely simple, at the same time deep. The book has three parts. And the reason for that is that in my experience of teaching theology of the body over many, many years now, for almost 30 years, the book has taken 20 years of, of those to write. Three difficulties that people run into. The first difficulty is finding one's sense of direction in reading the theology of the body. And part three of the book provides a map that summarizes each paragraph of the theology of the body in one sentence, if possible, and then adds some remarks or headings about the order of the argument. That's the innermost circle. That's designed for beginners, but may be useful also for the more advanced. The second difficulty that readers regularly run into is understanding the roots of the theology of the body in what it was earlier writings. And part two sketches those roots, his writings before he wrote the theology of the body. That's the intermediate circle, in a way, for intermediate level as well. And the third difficulty is understanding what it was relation to the philosophical and theological tradition as a whole. The theology of the body, in fact, joins a conversation that had been going on for a long time. And many readers find it difficult to pick up the thread. That's the purpose of the first part, is to sketch important moments in that conversation. Plato, Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas, William of Ockham, Luther, Bacon, and Descartes. That's the outermost circle, the, the most demanding. The best way is to read the book from the back. <laughs> so a little bit about the, the three parts. The first two parts are structured in exactly the same way. They begin with an opening chapter and then a critical triad and a constructive triad. Turns out to be seven chapters. Begins with a chapter on Humana Vitae, what Humana Vitae in fact says, and then attempts to understand why all of that resistance against Humana Vitae. And the resistance seems to arise from a deep change that came to our way of looking at the world in the Renaissance and afterwards in the scientific revolution, when the ambition for power over nature became the dominant forming aspect of 
the kind of knowledge people were after. If you're looking for power over nature, then the science of mechanics, which the ancients knew about, is the obvious choice. And the science of mechanics deals mathematically with forces so that you can do what you need to do. For example, a pulley, you figure out mathematically how much weight you can, you can carry with it. But that way of knowing tends to squeeze aside things that are not mathematically graspable, such as male and female, good and bad, no mathematical theorems about good and bad. Mathematics can be beautiful, but it's not about beauty. Then the critical triad, a key figure that stands behind this change in our perception of the world is Luther. So I compare Luther and John Paul on the logos of scripture. Logos there is as the word, the word of scripture. Luther has a profound understanding on the one hand of the gift of self between man and woman in marriage. The passages that read as if they were from the theology of the body of John Paul. But on the other hand, he thinks of all sexual activity as essentially sinful. But it's a marital duty, so you have a duty to sin in marriage. It's a typical dialectical way of coming at it. The third chapter goes into detail about this development of the understanding of reason as an instrument of power. And it's Francis Bacon and Descartes who stand behind that. In Catholic theology, that's the third of the critical triad, that new way of looking at the world led to a loss of the understanding of marriage. Dietrich von Hildebrand, who has wonderful things to say about marriage, but there are some defects in what he says about marriage, in particular in relation to children, um, that show the impact of Descartes. But Herbert Dohm's became really the, the watershed in Catholic theology for a new way of looking at marriage. A constructive triad follows, trying to affirm what's lacking in the limited way of looking at nature that's imposed by mechanics. First, on the nature of reason in Plato's Republic. Plato's Republic is a fascinating text because on the face of it, it has a theology of the body that's awful. Um, the proposal is that uh, men and women don't enter into permanent relationships, but there are governmentally organized episodes of begetting children calculated according to some complicated mathematical formula. <laughs> and children are not to know who their parents are. They're raised by government agents. Men and women do exactly the same thing, particularly in war. Women are trained for war. The analogy is dogs. Female dogs hunt, male dogs hunt. Therefore, women go to war, men go to war. But in fact, the deeper argument in the Republic is that way of looking at man and woman is imposed by a sub-rational way of looking at them. If one looks deeper on the level of reason at them, the situation is quite different. The logos of nature in Aristotle's physics. Um, one of the main insights of Aristotle is that what different beings are is shaped by the good that they're able to pursue. Think of eyes, but what are eyes? Eyes are organs by which you can see. Sight is the perfection of eyes. You can make sense of eyes in terms of sight. It's a non-mechanical way of looking at, at eyes. And the common good as the logos of reason, the account of reason, right at the beginning of love and responsibility, 
Karol Wojtyla argues that love between man and woman is impossible without a common good that unites them. If there's not a common good that unites them, men and women use each other. And there are two great common goods that unite them in marriage. One of them is the unity between them. They're common goods because, well, to whom does the unity belong? Wait a second, this is my unity. You're taking too much of the unity between the two of us. That doesn't make sense. Similar with the children. Whose children are they? Well, in custody battles, they get privatized. But in the best of circumstances, they're common to husband and wife. So common good is, is fundamental for the understanding of marriage. That's part one of the, of the book. Part two is about the breadth of reason in John Paul. And I begin with a chapter on Karol Rotiba's book on Vatican II, which is a comprehensive overview, in a way, of his whole theology, where you see the main theological themes of his later theology of the body spelt out in a more universal context. You see, among other things, his immense interest in experience, that is, in what happens in the actual experience of men and women. There's a deep kinship with the Franciscan uh, tradition in that respect. So glad Father Jim, you're here. Father Jim was there right when I started in Gaming many, many years ago and began this work. So happy you're here. Um, you can call what he was personalism, that is the emphasis on the life of the person, a Trinitarian personalism rooted in the Trinity. And self-gift is, in some ways, a central um, act of which the person is capable in imitation of the Trinity. Then comes a critical triad. The two philosophers with whom Wetiwa entered into dialogue were Kant and Scheele. Kant, one could argue, was the more important interlocutor for him. But he developed an anti-Trinitarian personalism of autonomy. That what gives human beings dignity is autonomy, that they're a law to themselves. It's profoundly different from seeing the dignity of the person as a participation in the Trinity exercised in gift of self. Gift of self is absent in, in Kant. He understands sex as always a human rights violation. Because what you do is you take possession of somebody else who is autonomous. So it violates their right to themselves. Um, Scheler's theomorphic personalism of solidarity, very different form of personalism from Kant's. Scheler attempts to respond to Nietzsche's attacks on Christianity, is deeply inspired in his early period by Christian themes, eventually as a sort of public spectacular apostasy from the Christian faith in, in his life. Dietrich von Hildebrand wrote brilliantly about that. Um, the final book in that critical triad is what he was critique of Scheler. His um, second thesis after the book on John of the Cross was his first thesis, the second thesis needed in the European, the European university system was a critique of Scheler. Not very well known in the English-speaking world because it hasn't been translated yet. Then comes a constructive triad, what was person and act, at least this is not a chapter on the whole book, every aspect of it, but those aspects that are particularly important for theology of the body. And central is John Paul's relation to St. John of the Cross. When he was a young man, a student still, he encountered the writings of St. John of the Cross, as the great master of Christian experience, what it's actually like to live as a Christian. 
and uh, that formed him deeply. There's a passage in Karol Wojtyla's autobiography, no, John Paul actually, when he was Pope, wrote that book, Crossing the Threshold of Hope. Easy to remember the page number, one, two, three, page 123. And there he says that as a young priest, he fell in love with human love between man and woman. And the one who loves the beauty of love wants to dedicate himself wholeheartedly to the service of beautiful love. So totus tuus is part of that devotion to the service of love. Um, it's part of the heritage of John of the Cross who had a similar sharp perception of Christian experience and of the beauty of love. The final chapter, in my mind the most important one, it's the one that I had the hardest time with, it took long to work through it. There are many Thomists, and I consider myself a Thomist too, a student of Thomas Aquinas, who is surely the greatest of, of our theologians, together with Bonaventure. as you, Father Jim, often told me when we skied together. Um, but it's true, they, and they were friends with each other. Um, there are many Thomists who are hesitant to call man and woman in their relation to each other, the relation of love, an image of the Trinity. I remember one professor whom I really admired, who became a friend, a Thomist, who told me, don't go down that path. That leads nowhere. So I turn the challenge around in that chapter and say, if that's what you say about the Trinity, in favor of an account of the Trinity in terms of proceeding word and proceeding love, which is the Augustinian account, you tend to reduce the mystery of the Trinity to the natural order, pull it down and transform public faith of the church and the trinity to a private philosophical conviction. It's a, um, it's the most, a chapter in which I'll see what Thomists will think about it. So that's the, those are the first two parts of the book. The last part of the book is the map. And I try to give an account in that map of the theology of the body of the way the book is organized on each level. The overall level is quite easy to understand. The theology of the body has two parts. The first part is on the spousal meaning of the body. The second part is actually speaking the spousal meaning of the body in the sacrament of marriage. So the second part is called the sacrament. The first part is called The Words of Christ. In chapter one, he talks about the spousal meaning of the body and Jesus is teaching in God's original intention at the very beginning. Then in chapter two, now threatened by sin but redeemed. And in chapter three, then in the future in the resurrection. So beginning, middle and end. It's a very, very clear structure. In part two, when he talks about the actual event in which man and woman speak the spousal meaning of the body to each other in the sacrament of marriage, he first talks about one of the two aspects of sacraments. A sacrament is a sign of a grace that's effective. So he first talks about the grace grace of union with God and the covenant, marriage as an imitation in a way, participation in the covenant. Chapter two, then about the sign, about the mutual gift of self of man and woman in word and flesh as a sign. And chapter three, finally, is about humana vitae, speaking the sign according to its full meaning. Once you understand that structure, the overall structure, you can state the argument of the theology of the body in a single sentence. It's actually very 
He's a remarkably clear thinker, even though reading the text of Theology of the Body is, is hard often. When the spousal meaning of the body, discussed in part one, chapters one through three, is brought into play by men and women as an effective sign of grace, that's part two, chapters one and two, it needs to be spoken, or as he puts it, reread by them according to its full truth, which is inseparably unitive and procreative. That's put positively the teaching of, of Humana Vitae. Let me give you an example of the, there's a lot of literary artistry invested in the theology of the body, in particular in one section that's called the spousal meaning of the body. It's divided into seven subsections. The first paragraph starts with the most encompassing beginning from which we come. God is the giver of what is good. By giving the gift of created being, the creator shows that he is love. That's the encompassing reality in which we live. And then he goes bang, 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 a level deeper with each step. The second paragraph moves from the creator as love to the creature by arguing that the creator impresses his own character as love, as the giver of gifts on man and woman. From the beginning, what comes out of fire is like its origin, hot. We come from God as the giver of what is good. That's our vocation. The third paragraph moves further inside by focusing on the human body as we experience it from within in the exchange of the gift between man and woman. The body has the power to express and realize love, and that leads to happiness. Those are the first three sections. Right in the middle, in the fourth, comes the discovery, revelation and discovery of the spousal meaning of the body. See, it's moving inside, inside, inside the person shows that in the moment of happiness, the meaning of the body is discovered and revealed as spousal, and thus as procreative. When you're happy, things make sense. They make their sense. Then the fifth section moves one level further down or inside to a necessary quality of the person without which the spousal meaning would collapse, namely being free to give oneself rather than acting compulsively out of passion or the contrary of that remaining cold that is not being able to mobilize the spousal meaning of the body to be able to say yes one needs to be able to say no it's one way of putting the point the sixth section moves yet another level deeper, more inside, to the character of the person as person who can find herself or himself only through a sincere gift of self. And that seems like the final point of arrival. If you want to go inside, inside, inside. Have you ever seen one of these Russian dolls where you can, kick, you can take them apart, there's an outside, and then inside you find another one, and it goes inside and inside, inside? That, that's the way this is constructed in literary terms. But there is a final level, namely the presence of the Holy Spirit in the temple of the body as the one from whom the whole structure takes its life. So the seventh and last paragraph returns to the divine source and paradigm to show that the spousal meaning of the body is rooted in the radiation of the spirit. One can arrange those seven sections, at least that's one way of remembering how they hang together in, as a chain that loops back to its beginning. God is love as gift. Love as gift is our call. Our call when realized brings happiness. Happiness teaches us the true meaning of the body, its spousal meaning. The spousal meaning requires freedom to give ourselves. Freedom to give shows what our innermost being, the person, is. But 
in our innermost being, the spirit dwells more inside than our innermost. So that's, those are the three parts of the book with just a few examples given of what's inside. But I want to give ample room to my colleagues. This particular one I learned uh, from, he was my master in thinking about these things. Uh, I remember in, at ITI in Gaming, where I was president, we read in our faculty seminar his book, The Conjugal Act as Personal Act, which I still think is really a masterwork. Um, so I'm glad you were here. The other two came later. I had them they both. They were our students. Stu they were our students, now exactly. Now <laughs> <laughs> so I'm looking forward to what you have to say, too. Thanks very much for listening. Each of us have taken one of these three parts and are going to share maybe over the course of about five minutes some of the content of those parts. But before I begin, I'd like to express a word of gratitude to Dr. Waldstein. It was mentioned that he was our teacher in Gaming, at least mine and Dr. Newton's. And I'm sure you'll agree from the presentation today and any of you that have him as a student, have him as your teacher, that he's eminently clear. And he introduced me to the theology of the body, and I'm humbled to be here today on the panel together with him. I'll share one insight from the introductory part. Dr. Waldstein sets before us two ways of reasoning. One he calls the practice of reason, and the other he calls the violent practice of reason. The first, the practice of reason, is something you find in Aristotle, St. Thomas, St. John Paul and other thinkers of the Western tradition. The violent practice of reason, he locates in its origin to some degree in Descartes and Francis Bacon. The practice of reason he puts before us as an openness to the things themselves, a receptivity to the world that reveals itself to us, and that there's something childlike about this. We find ourselves in the world with wonder and awe before things, and we form common notions that encompass our further philosophical reasoning. And this is a deeply embodied way of reasoning because we encounter the world through the senses and we're set in the world as a natural and bodily world. Set in contrast to this is a Cartesian mode of reasoning. And here we have an ambition for technological power over nature as the determining end of this mode of reasoning. And it's modeled according to a mathematical mode of reasoning where one forms clear and distinct ideas of the things. And in consequence of this mathematical mode of reasoning and a desire for power over nature, we inevitably have a use of mechanics as the master science. Now, Waldstein puts before us that this marriage of mechanics and mathematics does violence to the natural world in the way we reason about the things which are. We gain power over nature, but at what cost? As Waldstein put before us, we lose a sense of good and evil. We lose a sense of beauty. We lose a sense of consciousness and knowledge. We lose a sense of human love and together with it, sexuality, male and female. These things cannot be grasped by mathematics and these things cannot be leveraged by mechanics. So though we've gained power over nature, there's a cost embedded in this power in a kind of caricature of reason, a narrowing of the horizon of reason, no longer expansive to the fullness of the being but now reason quantifying and calculating for the sake of power. I'd like to read a quotation from page 14 that puts the problem before us very clearly.
If the material world does not have its own goodness, if it consists only of particles in motion, the only characteristics of which are those that can be measured and expressed in mathematical equations, we are thrown back upon ourselves to construct meaning. As a construct, such meaning can only have relative truth. It can only be true for me right now. Other constructs can replace it. No one has the right to impose their construct on anyone else. We are free in the degree to which we ourselves give meaning. So what we discover here as a consequence of this mathematical and mechanical mode of considering the natural world is a loss of a sense of the meaning of the natural world and together with it the body. The logos of the body, the logos of human love, the logos of sexuality is jettisoned for the sake of this power over nature. What the theology of the body does for us in Waldstein's introduction and in the text itself is reintroduce us to the entire expanse of reason. Dr. Waldstein said the text is actually simple, even though very lengthy, and it requires this length to give us the proper scope of reason again. It's meditative, it's reflective, and it takes us on a journey where we discover again the meaningfulness of the human body, its sexual character, and together with this, the meaningfulness of the natural world. Now, this is just one insight of part one, but even though it is something that exists at a distance from human sexuality, we can see that this context has created for us a problem. And we see that problem very clearly in contraception and other related problems in the sexual arena that the Catholic Church identifies for us. Okay, I think that's me. Thank you so much. Okay, um, okay. Uh, I was, uh, uh, I'm gonna pick on the third part on the map. Um, one thing that struck me, uh, Dr. Wallstein said, that actually structure is quite clear and easy to see. I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think you, you've made it uh, easy to see, maybe. Um, I took a class uh, in the theology body in 2002, maybe, uh, with Dr. Wallstein, and I remember in the class, um, him becoming, in his very gentlemanly way, frustrated with the text because we were reading the English translation, which was uh, prior to his translation, the common one to read. And it was the result of um, uh, lots of different translators uh, working on the catechesis over a four or five year period. So that the problem was you didn't have um, a single translator through, you know, I don't know how many you have, I guess we never know how many you have, but it was the translation from the Observatoire Romano and so words that were translated in one way at the beginning may be translated another way at the end. Uh, titles had been placed into the text, uh, which had been placed in, as far as I understand, for, for the sake of the newspaper. And so it was somewhat tangled. And uh, the division of the text, which was commonly understood at the time, is, I think, significantly different um, from the one that you present. For example, states of life uh, seem to be one way of kind of trying to make sense of the text. And uh, for me, it was an eye-opener as a theology student to see somebody of great learning sort of wrestling with this text and really being determined to say, but look, we have got to understand the structure of this text if we're ever going to make headway here. And it was a kind of event horizon for me in my theological formation in this thing which was very uh, sort of central to the way of study at the ITI, where he was a president, I was a student at the time, making a divisio of the text, dividing the text. You have to be able to divide it into its structure uh, to understand it. And the whole point was you've got to understand at each part what the purpose is and then what any of the parts are doing in order to contribute to that purpose. And until you know that, you can't, you, it's really, really hard in even a small text to make sense of it, let alone such a large text. And um, uh, I know that from, from that class, uh, you know, that certainly spawned um, uh, the, the work that Dr. Boschlein did on translating the text, because that gave us then a coherent text, yeah? one where you know, the word you know, desire was you know, uh, 
kept, kept um, straight all the way through the text, didn't start using a different word, you know, uh, 50 catechesis later. Um, but also, you'll see in the book that, um, you know, some investigation had to go into the actual determination of the structure of the text, uh, even uh, trips to um, Poland uh, after the, uh, the Holy Father died. He relates a trip to Poland in, in order to actually see if he could find the original text. And it turns out that the original text is uh, in Polish. Um, and uh, that, 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 I think, indicates, as far as understood, that some of the titles of, of uh, catechesis really w were inserts and they're not in, the, not in the original. So there was a lot of effort to, to seek and to be absolutely tenacious to say, look, I want to understand the flow of this thought. And you know when you're reading a text and you're going along, you're going along, you think, now the author's going to turn left, he's going to turn left, and then he turns right. And you realize, I don't understand, I'm not in his head, I'm not in his mind, I, it, I'm not understanding this as, as uh, he understands it, as the author. And an absolute tenacious work uh, in order to give us the structure now, that's embedded in the roadmap. The roadmap isn't merely a summary, a super helpful summary of each uh, of the paragraphs. It is that, uh, a masterful summary in one or two sentences, and Dr. Wolfstein is an absolute master of that. But it also presents to us at every sort of level of, sort of, of um, zooming in and zooming out the structure of the text. And without that, uh, you really will be swimming around in this text. You know it's an important text, you know he's saying something important, but it's hard to connect one point to another point without the structure. And the roadmap gives that uh, to us. So it's really, really a uh, helpful part. But Dr. Bostein is very, very clear about this. Um, at, um, at ITI, there was a, uh, the, the um, motto of the Institute is ad fontes, back to the sources. And it was an institute where you didn't, you, you didn't read many secondary texts. You, you read the primary texts, Augustine, okay, scripture, of course, Augustine and Aquinas. And Dr. Wolstein is very clear about this in a way uh, that he very gently says he doesn't want this roadmap to substitute your reading for the theology of the body itself. He gives a lovely analogy of driving through the Alps in Austria. Uh, which is, there was spectacular drive if you drove south from Garming. Once my um, daughter got bitten by a snake and was taken to a hospital about two hours away and I had to dash in the car from Garming to the hospital. And um, while I was panicking at one level, I was just blown away at the beauty. <laughs> um, and um, that, that's what he says. He says, look, if you've got a, a route finder in your car and you're driving through the Alps, okay, check it now and then to make sure you don't get lost, but don't miss the landscape, yeah? So it's absolutely clear that he, he wouldn't want that third part to be a substitute for reading, but I have to say it is rather dangerously close to a substitute because it's so much easier. Uh, but I know that really wouldn't be his aspiration. I'll maybe finish with this point. Again, look, with a work like this, you could think, well, that's it. He's nailed it. Nah, nobody else needs to, really to you know, write a book on the theology of the body again. But the, the spirit that I've always found in Dr. Wolstein is that while he, he's an exceptional scholar he, and he can nail things, he always remains open. And he's a scholar that doesn't close questions down by his brilliance, but seeks to open them up for others by his brilliance. Yeah? So uh, I'm sure he would say this, plea, th get this book because it's a real gold mine. It's, it's really, a, you know, sort of a, a travel guide for you. But uh, as a travel guide, don't actually, uh, you know, miss the sites themselves. You know, read the theology of the body itself with the assistance of this travel guide, if I can put it that way. Thanks. Yeah, I would start by saying that uh, I've had not just the honor, but the real gift of uh, working initially with colleagues and then becoming friends with Dr. Waldstein for going on 24 years now. So he said it took him 20 years to write the book. I was there for all of those 20 years. I have pieces of the manuscript from about 15 years ago in my office, and he's been working on it and working on it. But I remember so far back uh, when we first started talking about these things, he knew relatively little about the theology of the body. And, uh, he knew a lot. I was teaching the class at the ITI, and he said, do you think I could teach it one semester? And so that's how he ended up teaching the class that Dr. Newton was mentioning. Now, bear in mind, he was the president at the time. Of course he could teach it if he wanted to. He said, sure, you take it this semester. <clears throat> and obviously, before long, 
he knew way more than I did. I was learning so much from him. Uh, and now he's this, as Dr. Hildebrand said, world-renowned expert on the theology of the body. Um, so it's been a long time in coming for me, this book. I've been anticipating it the whole time of those 20 years. And, and uh, one thing I would say is that how long it took such a great mind as Dr. Waldstein's to produce this work signals to us not just the complexity of the theology of the body, but the enormity of what is at stake in all the theology and all the questions that, that he deals with. I mean, just looking at the book, that's the thing that it should signal to you in the first place. You say, this is a huge book. It's a little bit intimidating, perhaps. But that's the signal of the enormity of what's at stake in the theology of the body and what Dr. Baldstein is, is treating in his book. Uh, if we go back to the idea that Humanae Vitae is a very small encyclical, just a few pages, John Paul II produced you know, an enormous amount, with an enormous book now of thought to support Humanae Vitae, and now we have this other enormous book. Again, that is the signal just of how much uh, is at stake. Uh, there's a lot in the book that you know, we could recommend to say this is the value, this is the value. Uh, for me, the value is how he emphasizes what is at stake in the rejection of Humanae Vitae, the whole worldview, the way of reasoning, the concept of the person, all of that that is behind whether or not you accept the teaching of Humanae Vitae, and then ultimately clarifying that it comes down to this Trinitarian personalism, and whether you don't just believe in the Trinity, but know the Trinity is gonna make one of the biggest differences in the world, whether you can really accept the teaching of Humanae Vitae or not. Uh, so it is at stake so many things, a concept of the person, a concept of how we interact with reality, a concept of truth and reason and meaning and sexuality and all these things, but really ultimately it comes down to what do we believe about ourselves based on what we believe about God. Uh, if I had to point specifically, you know, in terms of, of as, as the others did, something in the book itself, the section on Humanae Vitae treating the inseparability of procreation and union and really highlighting the meaning of procreation in, a, in, a, in the sense of the person in the sense of self-giving, in the sense of the kind of love it is. And then on a more academic level, the treatment of the early 20th century Catholic personalists is very important because if you look at the theologians who in the 1960s and 70s were rejecting Humanae Vitae and encouraging others to do so, they often pointed back to Herbert Dohms from the 1930s. Now, it's easy to lose sight of him in our day. People don't really even know who Herbert Dohms is perhaps, so it's so great that that part of the book that Dr. Wallstein connects that, that what's going on in the issues of, of Herbert Dohms and that kind of personalism that misses the mark somewhat is what led with even in the church to a rejection of Humanae Vitae. And the big crisis there that he clarifies in several places is that kind of personalism is just unable to cope with the procreative meaning of our sexuality. And it rejects it precisely because of, again, lacking the true sense of the person. But even the true sense then of, of what it is to give children rather than have children, for example, and externalizing so much of, of that truth of sexuality in a way that's contrary to God's plan for sexuality. So I think I'm just going to leave it at that as the focal point that the opportunity to understand so many things by how much is at stake, but in particular, the procreative aspect of human sexuality being really understood through the lens of all of those greater realities that he treats of in the book, all those different authors and, and thought patterns and things that are treated in the book really come to that focal point. Can we come to terms with what it is for us as humans to participate in the creative power of God through our human sexuality? And so many in our day can't. They just simply cannot cope with it. And it really comes down again to not knowing the Trinity and having that Trinitarian understanding of oneself. Thank you so much for those contributions. Let me just add one thing. I still look up much to your book, um, The Conjugal Act is Personal Act. I think it's, it's a masterpiece. If you have a choice, buy it.
think we have time for a few questions for any of our panelists. Any questions? Not a single one. Well, I have a comment. Please, Dr. Liccioni. <laughs> That's a good one. Right. Yes, please. Um, congratulations, Dr. Balchstein, on your book. Um, question for you. As we get further and further away from Homer Tesla's uh, era of giving you drawing and proof, and it seems like the modern person gets kind of distracted by so many different sexual constructs, like Oh, absolutely. We are on a pretty consistent path ever since the scientific revolution. In a way, it's surprising that it took the American Supreme Court so long to declare homosexual marriage as equal to um, marriage between man, man and woman. Cartesian principles would lead pretty much immediately to that. So we are on a trajectory the transsexual movement is, is the most recent form which that takes. So I'm convinced this book is pivotal for our culture, more and more so. It's striking that the Bible begins with an account of man and woman in creation, as in some way the center of God's intentions with, with creation. And that shows you the importance right away from the beginning. And it, that's still the case. Can you say something about man and woman? Yeah. Augustine developed. That's why I was smiling. That's the, the, the real Dr. Waldstein. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I'll hear about it all the evening long today. <laughs> um, Augustine and, and Thomas Aquinas perfected that, approached the Trinity in a particular way to help us understand that when we talk about the Father and the Son, this is not to be imagined physically the way human beings beget each other. God is spirit. God is not a body. So Augustine developed the idea that when God knows himself, God speaks a word through which that knowledge of himself is expressed. And God loves himself. And God's presence to himself as beloved is something like a word. It's also something proceeding from God. And St. Thomas Aquinas perfected that way of looking at the Trinity. Of course, both of them maintained that the divine persons are persons. But following their approach to the Trinity, there are a number of theologians. Karl Rahner is an example. Bernard Lonergan in a different way who want to say, well, if you start talking to your own idea of yourself as you, this is not what to say, this is it's a caricature, but if, you, if your idea of yourself, the word that you form of yourself becomes for you another person, you're crazy. It's not you. I am I, and my idea of myself is, is, is part, of, part of myself. So there tends to be a minimizing of the personal distinction of the persons of the Trinity as a communion of love. That's, um, that's what the debate is really ab about between a certain type of Thomism and uh, John Paul. 
There are also, of course, other difficulties that have come up. Uh, when you talk about the relation between man and woman, it's very difficult not to be seduced by a certain sensationalism of sex. And so some ways of rendering the theology of the body highlight that in a degree that's out of, out of balance somewhat. Um, that may be another reason why a number of theologians are uncomfortable with the theology of the body. I've heard one person say, this is Catholic pornography. If you read the text, it's, it's hard, to, hard to come to that conclusion. But if you hear some way of rendering the text, it's, not, it's perhaps not so far from the truth. Dear sweet. Right. Thank you. Thank you for put, putting me on the narrow and straight, uh, which, um, without which I would be in another place now by in, 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 in this, in this, in my life. Yeah. That the communion, you can start with a text in the Gospel of John. Um, where Jesus prays to the Father that all may be one as we are one. That's clearly a communion of persons. So man and woman in their love for each other, the union created by that love, reflect the Trinity. That's an image of the Trinity. It's interesting that there are few texts in the tradition, in the theological tradition that apply the term image exactly to that likeness, that they may be one as we are one. The likeness is expressed by the word as. So that's the first respect in which man and woman, in their relation of love, reflect the Trinity. But um, the Trinity is a mystery of God from God, light from light, true God from true God. The mystery of, of human beings, in contrast to angels, is that there can be human beings from human beings, human persons from human persons. The child is from its, from its parents. It's, in fact, the words Jesus taught us to use about the Trinity is that of father and son. That's immediately a familial um, reality. And even though one has to be then careful and say, well, God is not a body. And so the way in which the Son of God is born from the Father is, is profoundly different. Nevertheless, it's a genuine image. A step better, dear? Yeah. And uh, so my argument is that, in fact, Thomas Aquinas is in agreement with John Paul II. There's not disagreement, contrary to what many Thomists claim. To be asking uh, well, there's always the question, is it true? Does it make sense? <laughs> That's a good question to ask about my book. Sometimes it may be obscure, but um, no. To me, the central question is exactly the one that uh, Frau Dr. Waldstein just raised namely, and that, that in various ways was underlined by all three of the panelists, namely, we come as creatures from the Trinitarian God. What does it mean to live a life of conscious participation in the way in, in which God lives? 
in the complete gift that the Father makes of the whole fullness of divinity to the Son in begetting him, that they breathe the spirit of love into each other. That's the main question of our life, I think. But what does it mean for us to follow Christ as, as the Son of God, who leads us into the life of the Trinity? Main question. Wetiwa is a great one for that, because in person and act, if you set aside the really falsified edition called The Acting Person, in, in that book, Person and Act, he has a brilliant analysis of freedom that doesn't lag behind any other account of freedom in affirming that human dignity of, of being free. So there's a resource there in him, and at the same time, a resource to resist the, the cutting of the bond. In John 8, 44, there's a definition of the devil. It's a fascinating one. When he speaks the lie, he speaks from himself as if he were the origin, the absolute origin, and not from another. That's the fundamental lie. If you ask, well, what, what, what in the devil is from himself alone? Did you have to say, absolutely nothing. Because he's a creature, the whole being of which flows from the creator. And everything that's implied in that being from the father and filled with a spirit of sonship, um, th that's the answer to a false understanding of freedom. And it's in no way enslaving to be like the one who is God from God. Um, light from light, true God from true God is not demeaning. It's being lifted, it's, it's a greater dignity. more questions do we have or perhaps sentence yes please last question could you talk on the similarities between the modern view of the body and the spiritual view of the body and how theology of the body directly yeah um, from one point of view the mechanical view of the universe as just matter and motion to be understood mathematically, seems neutral. But in fact, it contains and, and expresses, you could call a deep hatred of the body, which is an old um, heresy. The Gnostics, Gnosticism was the first heresy in a book in, in a text I worked on, Secret John, which is a text from the Nakamadi Library, a Gnostic text, sexual reproduction is the plot of the devil to trap spiritual substance in matter. And the whole path of salvation is to resist that. In, in some ways, our, our modern way of looking at nature is different because we don't think of nature as people by demons. But a universe without meaning that doesn't point you in any direction, that's the really bottomless pit. Um, it's, it's worse than a universe like the Gnostics where demons fight against you because at least they show you the direction 
out. Whereas we, we have no direction. The, the, the universe that the physicists present to us is just plain fact. All meaning is up to us. That's, that's the bottomless bit. Thank you.